Osiris production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Greetings, humans. Well, we've packed up our saddlebags and watered our camels for a mirage-filled journey through Blues for Allah, the Grateful Dead studio album originally released on September 1, 1975. The first record after a year-long hiatus, Blues for Allah finds the dead back in experimental mode with some of their most challenging material since the Anthem of the Sun Oxamoxoa era. But that doesn't mean there aren't some tasty scrapes. In fact, Blues for Allah contains a handful of set staples, including the immortal Help on the Way Slipknot and Franklin's Tower sequence. And yet, many would agree that Blues for Allah isn't as satisfying as other Grateful Dead studio records. We'll discuss the possible reasons why in just a minute. Before we do, I wanted to remind listeners about the Skull and Roses Festival coming up on April 2 through 5 in Ventura County, California. The festival is a mecca for heads, with acts like Billy and the Kids, O'Teal and Friends, Circles Around the Sun, Grateful Shred, Voodoo Dead, Melvin Seals and JGB, Ghostlight, and more, all set to steal your face and tickle your fancy. You can pick up your passes at skullandroses.com slash Osiris and check out the full schedule for all four days. Again, that's the Skull and Roses Festival on April 2 through 5 at Ventura County Fairgrounds in Ventura, California. Head to skullandroses.com slash Osiris to score your passes. And with that, it's time to turn east and make our prostrations before the mystifying majesty of the Grateful Dead's Blues for Allah. Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. So, Blues for Allah, the first Grateful Dead record back from their 1974 hiatus. I think this one came out in September 1975, and it's a weird one. Yeah. (laughs) It's an unplanned one. (laughs) Well, that's charitable, because it feels like we were building to something with the previous records, especially Mars Hotel, you know, where they came in ready to go with these songs that had been worked out on stage. And here, that is just simply not the case. They had, like, a song or two. (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple. (laughs) Look, we seem to be tiptoeing around this, like... I'll just come out and and be the guy who's like <laughs> you're the guy. I'm not sure about this one. <laughs> we have been on this journey and it's yeah. been a fun journey. And then all of a sudden it's like we just ran into a brick wall. Yeah. And 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 then I look, I went back. I I searched the entire internet and I looked for all the criticisms of the Dead Studio albums and they're all here. <laughs> you searched the whole internet, but yeah, until you get to Built to Last or something for sure. Right. <laughs> but you know, Built to Last probably has more songs. But it is really weird with the opener, Help on the Way and Slipknot, which are two of my all-time favorite Grateful Dead numbers, because they're very much, we've talked before about how the Dead had been dipping their toes in progressive rock. And these are kind of progressive rock songs, almost in the sort of Robert Fripp, uh, King Crimson vernacular Mm -hmm. with the intertwined guitars and stuff. And even Jerry's solo here is like a fuzz tone solo with long sustained notes, as opposed to lots of quick little triplets and a clean tone. So it sounds like they had something like that in mind. It's just weird hearing these songs in incipient form before they had a chance to develop in concert. 
I don't like to talk about the live show. I don't think there's like a whole lot of value in like really dissecting the live shows. Just put on the fucking tape mm -hmm. and yeah. and just do it. You know, enjoy your. <laughs> or shit. maybe you were actually there. Uh, yeah. In yeah. which case, your experience is conditioned by the social experience and the pharmacological backdrop. Right. Right. But I do think it's worth mentioning. That, so, like, my first exposure to these songs was one mm -hmm. from the vault. Yeah. And that is for the first time in dead history and in, in what we've been doing on the season, the first time I've been looking at me like, you know what? Uh, maybe these people are right. The studio albums aren't as good as this. And they worked out everything that is not necessarily working here mm -hmm. on that release. It's a stellar yeah. release. It, it got people into the dead. It got me in the dead. You know, one from the vault was the, the launch pad after uh, In the Dark. Well, it's funny because one from the vault is actually contemporaneous with Blues for yeah. Allah. Yes. And it has, you know, kind of all the songs from the studio album. So it makes you wonder all those other times where the dead chose to release a live album instead of a studio album here, they sort of uh, create an unnecessary redundancy. Almost. That's my point. That, that's exactly my point. It's like what, yeah. all the times that they went and did stuff, and, and we know, like, that I haven't, some of those live albums, I'm sort of like, eh, on, and, but this was the one where they played the show. And played all these songs and should have just been like, you know, <laughs> hey, guys, I think these are the versions. I think the things to commend this album are that when you get to something like King Solomon's Marbles, that's probably the closest the dead ever got in the studio to giving someone who only heard the albums a taste of what you would hear for most of the night if you saw them live. Yeah, I can see that. Um, it, it, it sort of approximates the feeling of a dead jam mm -hmm. in terms of like production. This is, you know. Like, how do you make horns sound this flat and this lifeless? You know, it's just. Well, at least you got Mickey's crickets. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. And then and then Mickey brought crickets to the studio. The jokes write themselves. guys. <laughs> well, I do actually admire their commitment to experimentalism, though, especially taking up that much of the scarce resource of audio tape to do some of the things that are on this record. Like, for example, the blues for Allah suite <laughs> or, you know, Mickey's crickets. But at the same time, we just have come from. From two records that have a smattering of some of the dead's most durable songs and live performance yep. that are also fairly well realized if not signature versions in their studio form so it's kind of weird to drop the needle on this record and hear this <laughs> that became like you talk about durability uh help slip franklin's is yeah. the most durable yeah run yeah. In, dead, yeah. in the dead can it is totally a classic sequence and you know it when you hear it and 90 percent of the time it's going to be a absolutely wonderful ride and i'm not saying that i hate the versions here it's just they're a little bit half-baked no pun intended well you know <laughs> 
In their live shows, the band was also, I mean, obviously they weren't touring when they recorded this, but they were sort of, I think, emerging from the realization that a lot of, you know, a lot of things they were doing were not sustainable, <laughs> yeah. right? And so, clearly, you know, it's it's one of those things where, like, you go back and, and you listen to those 1972 shows and you realize that, like, they were playing for four hours each night, right? Those yeah. shows are, like, three hours and 40 minutes, three hours, 50 minutes. Right. And, and what's going to come out of here, and this is sort of the fun piece of, like, we know what's going to happen next, is they're headed for, like, 1977, 78, 79, these are sort of like peak mm. um, song-based years where the playing is tight. Yeah. Um, and so maybe, you know, the the album serves a, a purpose in that mm. narrative. I also think there was a deliberate attempt to keep the Grateful Dead records pipeline flowing. The Keith and Donna solo album didn't really light up the charts. <laughs> and uh, Ron Rikow needed a hit to keep up those crazy schemes. And, you know, again, like, I, I do appreciate the laid back quality of it. They recorded it at Bob mm -hmm. Weir's house and... I guess it shows, but I, I think everyone in the dead seemed to have a nice time together making this record. And looking back, Phil Lesh claims it's one of his favorite Grateful Dead albums. Uh, you know, he tends to like the weird stuff anyway. For me, Blues for Allah gets a full additional star uh, simply because of that gorgeous album cover that I could stare at all day long and have stared at. Here, here. And it's one of the most iconic dead images uh, that exist. No doubt about it. Musicians write in studios or not for various reasons. And, th and this was like the first time that they did that. Yeah, to this extent. Anyway. So all of this makes sense, right? We're like, we spent so much money and we want to experiment now. I mean, yeah. Jerry is saying shit like, I'm creating scales. Okay, first of all, you're not creating scales, Jerry. Yeah. I get like, what you're I'm, saying, but yeah, yeah, he's like, I'm creating scales that make their own harmonics, and like that's uh, that's a well, we'll get to the drugs later, but that's a thing, <laughs> and all of that is like hella admirable. Yeah, like as aspiration, it is right on. Right. It's just that you know what gets translated to the turntable may leave a little bit to be desired, mm. especially considering the trajectory that they were on. At the same time, this really does have some Grateful Dead staples. Yeah. We talked about the help Slipknot Franklin's triptych. And then there's The Music Never Stopped, which mm -hmm. did become a set staple. And that one's interesting to me because it has the Donna Jean breakout, which unsurprisingly sounds better on this record than it does in most live performance. Uh, it also has a co-write from John Perry Barlow, who contributes lyrics. And it's kind of funny because, to me, some of it reads like a Robert Hunter composition. You know? The line, the music played the band, is definitely... Uh, in the hunt, you know, from the hunter stream. Yeah. Uh huh. And the line, they're a band beyond description, yeah. like Jehovah's favorite choir. Yeah, yeah. That has the sort of meta mythic hunter quality. They're a band beyond description, like Jehovah's favorite choir. People join in hand in hand while the music plays the band. Lord, they're setting us on fire Crazy rooster crowing midnight Balls of lightning roll along Old men sing about their dreams Women laugh and children scream And the band keeps playing on
despite their like their uh, selfness, they they always seem to be at some level chasing their identity. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. I think I think you know uh, Bob's quote actually on this was like a studio is an instrument that I would dearly love to know better. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and in the process, all they were thinking about was like, who are we? Which is just an artistic endeavor. Yeah, the project is never finished. The dead are in permanent beta. Yes. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, I've always said that the Grateful Dead fail upwards. It's just that here, I'm not really sure what upwards means. Now, I know that there are people who probably love this album. It might be their favorite. And uh, yeah. I expect to get, you know, letters from listeners about uh, why that's the case. And I can't wait to read them. It's just that for me, I have difficulty pointing to any of these takes as competitive within the dead or outside the dead. Well, look what's coming out in 1975. You got blood on the tracks. You've got porn to run. Yeah. Wish you were here. Night wow. at the opera. Young Americans. Katie Lott. Redheaded stranger. Yeah. Um, and beautiful loser, like even Bob Seger is putting out his best work. <laughs> and what what is going on? Yeah, whatever was in the water supply, the dead were not drinking <laughs> it. You know, it is actually kind of frustrating to me because with Mars Hotel, I felt like okay, you guys have finally started to yeah. figure out how to represent your music in a studio setting. You know, it wasn't perfect. Maybe the drums still sound a little bit dull, but overall, the separation is good. The tracks are well realized. But here, I'm back to being like. What the fuck are you guys thinking? It completely blows up my theory that they were chasing hits. <laughs> yeah, there's no <laughs> hits on here. <laughs> this is the, the you are the touch moment in Boogie Nights. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, they're in the control room. <laughs> the cocaine and the hubris yeah. <laughs> reach such heroic proportions. Yes. Totally. I can picture it. You know, I think the, the dead's failure to re- reimagine themselves during the you know year and a half hiatus they take here probably ends up informing you know without that we probably don't get disco dead is that good or bad <laughs> i don't know it depends on how many rails you've done <laughs> <laughs> but devil's advocate you take a song like crazy fingers out of all the ones on this record that sounds fairly realized yeah yeah i mean you know i hear live versions of it that i like uh this version is perfectly fine too as a matter of fact this might be definitive uh crazy fingers it just happens that crazy fingers isn't my go-to dead song you know i talk about certain dead tracks uh robert hunter and jerry garcia compositions in particular where i kind of just forget that i'm listening like and then i'll look up and like oh oh here i am uh with crazy fingers (laughs) It's the entire song. That being said, (laughs) if Crazy Fingers had replaced Let Me Sing Your Blues Away from Wake of the Flood, I would have been totally cool.
You know, I already have a template in my mind for Help on the Way, Slipknot, and Franklin's Tower from various live recordings. So at the end of the day, I tend to relate to this version of Crazy Fingers and probably also King Solomon's Marbles. Mm -hmm. Now, it might be because I'm not burdened by prior associations with those songs as much, but I also think on Blues for Allah, they're very well represented. Yeah, and, and a song like King Solomon's Marbles is uh, to, to sort of end this uh, tyranny of hating on this album. <laughs> uh, a better version can be heard mm-hmm. on one from the vault, but it's simply because mm-hmm. it's live. Yeah, it's the energy. Compositionally, that's, that, that is such an interesting piece of it music. It is an interesting piece of music, and it's very well thought out and well plotted. And here's where I'm going to contradict myself because you guys know me as a progressive rock fan. I don't love all of it because like horror movies, you know, 90% of them are absolutely awful. But the 10%, I don't know, maybe it's 5% are really, really rewarding. And uh, I think with King Solomon's Marbles, it's kind of almost there for me. But at the same time, it it still sounds a little bit uh, unrealized maybe. So everybody should just go listen to the one from the vault version. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we could probably say that for this whole album. I'm totally fine, though. I'll just stare at the cover some more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about our early episodes and, and the Dead's early career discography, where every album was really a sort of like, what's going to happen here, right? Like, what <laughs> what did they decide to do? Yeah. What, kind of, what kind of glorious mess are we sorting through? And, and you know, other than Blues for Allah, I think, I think this sort of like mid-career phase is very, it's very songy, as we've said. Yeah, yeah. And there are fewer surprises, right? You're sort of going to it and you're like, oh, it's just a bunch of other songs. Right. It's just more songs. <laughs> I think what you get from this is that the band was maybe getting tired of just coming together and working songs and bringing them forward and recording them. And so they're not touring. So they use this as an occasion to say, like, maybe there's a different version of The Grateful Dead. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I would imagine that it's probably in part, at least what drove them to take the hiatus, that and the wall of sound, uh, the desire to reinvent themselves, which was always part of The Grateful Dead quest. You know, what's missing a little bit from this mid 70s phase sometimes is that feeling of danger you get that uh, the dead were so great at fostering in the late 60s, right? So Anthem of the Sun, Oxo, it's just sort of like, what is going to happen on, on those records when you put them on? You have no idea. <laughs> yeah. And Blues for Allah kind of brings us back to that experimentalism, you know, which we talked about at the beginning. Because it's less, less song centric. Right. Um, and they clearly had, you know, this one sort of centerpiece they wanted to bring forward. 
And then I don't know much about the writing of the actual song Blues for Allah, but uh, I can't tell if they spent a lot of time writing it or very little time. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I actually do think that they probably spent some time developing that as a motif. Uh, It's meant to evoke, you know, Persian and Arabian influences. And I think it has an entrancing effect on the listener that is definitely deliberate. I think some folks will find it nigh unendurable. I tend to like it a lot, but I have to submit to it, right? I have to submit to the will of Allah, so to speak. Uh, It's at the end of the record, so when it comes on, I'm always trying to make that choice. Do I just take the record off now, or do I go along for the ride? And usually at about the halfway point, I'm all in. I'm completely enveloped in this harmonically unusual but nonetheless entrancing motif strap in right you know the song sage and spirit seems way weirder to me yeah I, I just can't wrap my head around that one yeah there's a couple of clear bobby harmonic choices in that right. song but the rest of it is just sort of like this aggravating sort of like did art garfunkel show up or something or <laughs> right you know right Look, I get that they didn't have a whole ton of songs that had been road tested at this point, new ones anyway. But God, remember all those tunes that we looked at on like Skull and Roses and stuff? I mean, or even Garcia's uh, first solo album or whatever. It's like, re-record some of those, man. Like, (laughs) take this opportunity to give us a Grateful Dead studio version of Deal or something, you know? Um, The music never stopped. Uh, Sage and Spirit are almost like classic Bobby uh, flexing his shorts at this point. (laughs) As, as thin as that saxophone is that comes in and music never stopped, man, I get excited every time I hear yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, yeah. I'm like, because it, they expanded the instrumentation of the dead. Yeah. And it's a completely subjective experience. Right. Well, like Slipknot says, I love what I love and I want it that way. I know the dead from One from the Vault, Blues for All, those songs. Yeah, man. And that's the sound of the dead that I am chasing. Mm. Well, it's cool. You need Blues for Allah to get to that next stage. You do. Well, you know, maybe we don't need it, but they certainly did. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's important, especially when they're refamiliarizing themselves with one another. They get to relax at Bob's home studio, which I'm sure was really helpful in reintegrating Mickey Hart into the tribe mm-hmm. after his prolonged self-imposed exile. And this album allowed them, gave them the foothold to do that. And it also got, you know, product in the marketplace so they could sell a handful of, of records on their label, which was important because during the hiatus, they actually had to let some folks go in the front office and on the road crew. And the dead yeah. always cared about their employees. So uh, having new records to release gave them the opportunity to contribute to that overhead. Was this their last album on, on Grateful Dead Records? I think they go to Arista after this, right? Yeah, they somehow yeah. got Clive Davis to take the bait, but at least he was smart enough to say, you boys are getting a producer. <laughs> well, and, and in terms of the chronology of Garcia's life, too, this is also when like he's working on the Grateful Dead movie. Yeah. And I think in the Blair Jackson books, someone associated with the band talks about coming back and you know trying to figure out what the band we're up to because they had been on tour with someone else and they come back and, and Garcia is just like, hey, what's going on? I'm a stone cold junkie. You know, that's just that's yeah. just who I've become in the last 12 months. Yeah. You know, and he wasn't alone. 75 to 77 yeah. for a lot of bands. I'm thinking Led Zeppelin in particular became sort of peak junkie years for certain folks in the groups. And with Garcia, you know, on some level, I can sort of see it inform his playing in a way that I like. You know, he's a little bit more patient in his phrasing. 
listening as opposed to listening to 72 through 74 where you know he's just uh, rearing to rip those uh, hot country licks and so on and so forth and here you can sort of hear a little bit more thoughtful pacing at worst though he's sluggish and uh, you know it sounds like he's a little bit behind the eight ball <laughs> or uh, in front of it <laughs> certainly other members of the band <laughs> and crew you know I don't hear any obvious debilitation on Blues for Allah or even one from the vault but on the occasional live set from this period I can definitely hear the smack in his playing you know I think what actually changed the band sonically more than Garcia's addiction was the return of Mickey Hart and we'll get into this more as we get into this new era of the Grateful Dead but there's a little anecdote I wanted to share the drummer Matt Chamberlain who is a well-known session drummer who has played with tons of different musicians in all kinds of settings he uh, is a big Dead fan but he's referred to Mickey Hart as Groove Kryptonite (laughs) and uh, and you know, I don't know if I. I, don't know if, I have mixed opinions about this. Uh, I no, see you what he, don't. I, I see on. what he's saying. Well, look, I mean, I think I think in the original version of the Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart, you know, the the octo drummer, the one mind, yeah. the, the, the great flailing fucking Lovecraftian rhythmic beast, is uh, is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're just like punching their way through chaos. <laughs> <laughs> And then other times it's just like stiff as a board, you know, it's like bloated. But even in later period when it does work, it's interesting because Mickey brings a sort of martial feel to Billy's swing. And uh, when it clicks, you know, they really can create sparks. It's not all the time, but it can happen. The less we say about the beam, I think the better. Uh, but that, that's that's decades in the future. <laughs> you know, I think that does underscore the importance of the era you're listening to or even the show you're listening to because sometimes the double drum thing will be intense and scary. Other times it'll be sublime and uh, sometimes it's just a total train wreck. One of the easiest turnoffs for getting into the dead is going to be that double drumming sound. Yeah, I'm sure it is, because for me, I responded that way definitely before I became a deadhead. And that might be true of some of these albums as well. I would not say that Blues for Allah is a good place to start for a non-fan. As a matter of fact, you know... Our original thesis for this podcast was, Mm -hmm. you know, how does somebody who has no affinity for the Grateful Dead uh, and maybe even antipathy for the Grateful Dead become an appreciator of the Grateful Dead? And what are the the ways that that can happen? What are the hooks? Uh, Certainly, if somebody had put on Blues for Allah and sat me down and said, dude, you got to check this album out. I would have been like, what the fuck are you on? (laughs) That's kind of what I'm saying. And I don't mean to be a dick about it, because, of course, now I can hear. You know, I understand the dead better as a as an organism. I guess you yeah. know you can't get a perfectly clear picture of the dead, no matter what. You can't distill it down to you know uh, a singular kind of essence, which is actually now what I love about it. So I'm so much more tolerant of the ambiguities, and I'm much more tolerant of even the failures, musical and otherwise. But in our thesis is that you have to pay attention to these albums. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just be out there listening to however many bootlegs and be like, I am, I love the dead. I mean, you, you can love the experience, but it's like getting half an education on, on what this band actually is. And and I think more so than almost any band that I'm a fan of, they deserve your study. Mm -hmm. And that is the season two thesis in a nutshell, right? Yeah. It's why we're looking at the studio albums. I mean, everybody loves talking about the live stuff and listening to the live stuff. The live stuff's great. 
it's appropriately revered sure but there's this entire other side to the band and it has to be considered warts and all it just so happens that sometimes there's more warts than others (laughs) and that's going to do it for another episode of dead to me find us online dead to me pod.com socials at dead to me pod Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.